There are specific conditions where it's more challenging to help a child change. Let's say you have a teenage teenager who is rebelling, and you want to help this child to change and to move closer to God. You could think about it like the teenager is here, God is over there, and there are hurdles between the child and the Lord. Well, it's vital to know what these specific conditions are if your child is not walking with the Lord. There is great news here, and the great news is there's always hope. As long as you're living and breathing, there is hope, and you can do something about it. But here's the thing about hope. Hope is just not an empty concept. Hope is an active responsibility. It's similar to what James said in James 2. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works, well, it is an empty concept too. And so you have hope in God that he can bring change in a teenager's life. But you want to you want to, you have to cooperate with him in the process. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. The title of this podcast is Seven Conditions That Make It More Difficult to Help a Child, specifically to help a child change. And so I want to lay out these seven conditions And I want you to hear this like a diagnosis. And so for some of you, it will lay heavy on you like a a big old load of, of bricks. And I don't mean it that way. I just want you to gain clarity because if you have a problem and you don't know what the problem is or how to fully accurately assess the problem, you really need to hear this. And so I want you to listen to this from a hope-filled perspective, not a a negative, critical one. And I don't want you bemoaning this. I really want you, I mean, you can't celebrate, but I do want you to try to express some thanksgiving that God would give you clarity on some possible impediments that's between your child and the Lord. And for those of you who do the work of counseling, well, you can use this as a template to help a parent or parents who are struggling uh, with their teenage children. And so use this. There are a lot of embedded links here. Uh, I mean, theoretically, it could take you a couple of months to work through all that is is in, embedded inside of this article. Cynthia, I want to thank you for your generous donation today, and I want you to know that that you are one of the people that makes all of this possible. You make it possible because it takes about eight hours to write an article and to produce a podcast to do exactly what I'm I am doing now. It takes a lot of time, and Cynthia, I, ca- I cannot do this without you. But on the other side of that, Cynthia, I, w- I want you to know that it is impacting lives. There are many people who are being affected, that God is using these resources to impact. And and Cynthia, I want to give you an illustration of that. Uh, A lady came to our website earlier this week who doesn't know the Lord and stated that, not a Christian, and wanted to express gratitude for the resources that she is reading. The specific resource that she was talking about is an article that, that I did on toxicity the article in the podcast, and she was expressing gratitude uh, for that article, and she came here to write on our public domain forum saying those things. I responded directly to her. A couple of our team members also responded to her, and she came back with more gratitude for this community. And so, Cynthia, I want you to hear that. That is a phenomenal thing. As I, as I told our team, this is 
the most encouraging note that I have received in a long time. And then one of our team members, Brandy specifically, uh, said a similar thing. It was almost a jaw dropper, just expressing gratitude that God would bring uh, someone to our ministry that would read our resources in this person honestly uh, by their own statement that they do not that they are not Christians. And so uh, Cynthia and for the rest of you who uh, support this ministry, and even those of you who support it by sharing our articles, please understand this, that some of you want to help financially, but you can't. And that's okay. It's really okay. But you help by sharing our resources. And I want you to know that too, because there's really no control or management over where these resources go. And so when you share them on your social media platform, Who knows where it's going to land? And so thank you so much, uh, Cynthia, specifically for your kind donation today. Let me jump into seven conditions that make it more difficult to help a child. Condition number one, this is not in any particular order, but condition number one is women leading. Let me explain. Women usually are the primary audience when it comes to counseling-related issues. Typically, a wife will call for marriage counseling before a husband will initiate. A mother will contact me for parenting issues before a dad will. And I realize some men are not accessible to make appointments due to other commitments. I get it. I, I, I totally get it. So I'm not throwing all men under the bus. That's not my point. I don't want to be unkind here, but... Even though I'm not bashing, man, I do have to speak to this topic honestly because it is a thing. There is a definite pattern of women taking the lead when it comes to seeking help for their family. And this creates numerous challenges when counseling marriage or child problems. The biggest hurdle is the lack of male leadership in the counseling process. I remember a man calling me years ago regarding a counseling issue with his teenage daughter. During our initial phone call, I told him this. I said that half the battle was over because he was the one that was leading the process. Praise God. And I know many men do that. And again, I know that other men can't because of commitments. And so they delegate that to their wife, but they're very much involved in the process. Whenever a husband or a dad takes the lead, the counseling will move forward much faster. It's a fact. And so number one impediment, hurdle in front of a teen getting to the Lord is when the woman is doing the leading and the dad is not. Now what flows out of that is point number two is a father's influence. It is challenging to listen to a caring mom talk about what has been going on with her child And I know that I have some difficult things to say. But I realize that if I'm going to serve her effectively, I must be honest with her, which is what I'm doing now with point number one about women leading. There are certain conditions in which you cannot help a child as adequately as you want to, and she will have to come to grips with these things to keep from setting up a false hope about the counseling process, meaning that the counseling process is is going to get the job done. Uh, Reading an article, listen to a podcast, watching a webinar, the resources we provide, reading my book, for example, one of my books, for example. No, those are momentary seasonal things, and what we're talking about here is a long-term process. The most vital challenge under this point here of father's influence is the man of the home. You see, a child's earliest impression of God the Father is his daddy. 
The issues with poor fatherly leadership can have a lifetime impact on a child. It doesn't mean they won't be saved. I'm not saying that. But it is a significant shaping influence. You see, a child's problem is the same as yours and mine. Our, our number one problem is our problem with God, a theological problem. No other problems supersede that one. All roads lead to God, and in Him we find life. So God is our number one problem. We're born alienated. We're born with that hurdle between us and God. If a dad throws a stumbling block in a child's path, well, he's going to further hinder the kid's view of God and even the child's willingness to follow him. And if the child does not follow the Lord, then, well, you're limited in how you can help him. And so there are at least three ways a dad can abdicate his role as a spiritual leader in the home. He can die. He can leave home through divorce or abandonment. He can live in the house but take a passive or sinfully non-passive, authoritative and angry leadership position. And so point number two is a father's influence. And I want you to, again, I don't want you to be in despair about this reality, but just hopefully it will be enough to help you to assess that a father is the child's early and most impressionable influence of what God the Father is like. Therefore, uh, being that person between the child and God the Father, the dad, uh, is vital. Of course, if that is not happening because any of these three outcomes, a dad dying, a dad leaving through divorce or abandonment, or a dad in the house and being passive or simply non-passive, all of those will make the possibility of helping your child exponentially harder, which leads to point number three, second best. Now, this is a positive. You can look at it two ways. It's two sides of the coin. You're not without hope. There's a second best option, but you understand that it is second best. It's not the real thing. And so in such cases, as I'm describing here, the mother must find biblical male role models to fill in this gap. A dynamic small group, for example, could be an excellent place to find godly, loving, and wise men to come alongside the child during these formative years. Of course, it can be a pragmatic temptation to find the wrong man replacements, men who do not love God, who do not have a passion for the Lord. They love, do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because sometimes we can be pragmatic and we just put them on a team or part of an activity because we want to do something for them, but they don't have the best male influences in those contexts. And so these second-best surrogates will become the primary means to help a child grow into biblical manhood or womanhood. Let me give you a few options of these surrogates, these second-best options. And again, though these are not ideal, do not despair in seeking to surround your child with trustworthy companions. Here's a list of eight. Your local church, obviously. Your youth group. Uh, Ask a youth leader, part of the leadership, to come alongside your child. A Christian school could be an excellent context to find someone in that school that that will own this. Sports activities 
can be excellent where the child is doing something that they really love and have a man there who is an excellent example teaching this child how to interact socially, for example. Social interactions, other contexts in which you are in uh, where men who love God are. Personal relationships within your own neighborhood, within your own cul-de-sac, within your own family, finding a male that will, again, own this opportunity. Appropriate media. And what I mean by that is that you can use movies, for example, as a way of illustrating what male leadership looks like to the child. And then what I call companion hobbies. Hobbies that a child can do with a male companion that will be a positive influence on the child, like hiking, for example, being part of of, of the scouts or being part. Of, a lot of churches actually have these internal scout organizations like Awana, for example, and there's others where they do this. But uh, associating your child with a hobby that they like with a, a male who can be a positive influence. And so these are second best surrogates. It is a hindrance because it's not the real thing, but again, it can be a positive experience. Number four, poor leaders. This is a hindrance. Whenever a parent asks a child to be Christ-like, but is not correctly emulating what it's like they set up one of these conditions where it's more difficult to motivate a child to behave, to obey. The child's proper parenting model is this, for the parent to model Christ. There is no other template that will work better than a follower of Jesus. As image bearers, there is a community desire inside of all of us. We want to be part of a divine community. God, the first community, the Trinity, the first community, made us in their image. Therefore, there is something innate within us that desires interpersonal relationships. And because of that, we affect each other. We affect each other by becoming similar to each other. We become similar to those who are around us. Well, imagine this. Parents have 10 to 12 years to affect their children for Jesus Christ. If you are modeling Jesus Christ and you're in this communal context, the home, well, that will have a positive effect. During this time, a decade or more for the early shaping influences, the kids are under a powerful influence of the parents. And so the most logical thing a parent could do is maximize those years for God's fame. Now, how do you do that? Well, this is how you do that. Stand erect in the child's path, showing the child the way to God through your humble and practical example. Parents have impressionable, authoritative power with their children. You see, the children already believe the parents because they don't know anybody else to believe. You parents, you know this. You've had this experience where you told the child something, the three-year-old, the two-year-old, the four-year-old, five-year-old, and they believe you. Why? Because you're the only one that's telling them, and so they believe what you say. You have impressionable, authoritative power, and they already believe you. They don't have anyone else to consider. And so give them God's word practically imitated. That is your best play. 
your best move. Point number four, poor leaders. Well, obviously, if you do this poorly, it will have impressionable authoritative power as well, but that becomes the hindrance. Number five is role replacement. Now, I talked, point number three was second best, talking about surrogates, and I I mentioned that as, as a positive thing. And so when I talk about role replacement here in point number five, I'm saying something different. Let me explain. Paul did not stand on the sidelines like a coach yelling at the people he wanted to see change. He chose a different leadership style. He led by his example. Now, here's the thing that I want you to hear under this point. Parents have no choice in this matter. They are already leading by their example regardless of what their example is. There could be a tendency for some to think leadership belongs to a certain group of people, like it's the exclusive domain of influential, charismatic individuals. No, leadership can take you to heaven. Christ, leadership can take you to hell. Satan, each parent gets a decade, the early formative years, the primary formative shaping influence years, they get a decade to show their leadership ability to their child. And so you don't, there's a temptation to farm this responsibility to other people or other activities. I mean, some parents do this. I mean, they will see their church as the primary supplemental replacement as though they don't have to lead well, and they can be anything that they desire to be other than a good leader. You are leading. You're leading as a poor example. And so even though some parents are tempted to delegate this, well, no, you do that. Let me give you an illustration. My parents sent me to a local church for the first 12 years of my life. My home was a dysfunctional mess that negated any good that came out of my church experience. Going to a church meeting for two hours on Sunday will not compensate for the other 166 hours of a child's week. Whatever replacement that you have for your child, it will not compensate for what they will receive inside of that home because that is where they spend most of their time. There's an irony here. The church could be a sore spot for the child as he sees other parents and other children who live a dramatically different life than the one that he has. And that is one of the things that added to my own personal frustration as a a child and a teenager, not just in church, but in school and other activities. I saw how life could be outside of my home, but my parents chose to farm out their responsibility by keeping us busy in other things, and there was an antithesis going on between those other things, which were not bad necessarily, Uh, like church, for example, but yet there was antithesis between those good things and what my home life actually was. And so number five is role replacement. Don't farm out. Make sure you take the lead and you lead well, not poorly. Number six, bad begats bad. While modeling and leadership, as I've been talking about, are more about theory, 
The conversation that I want to have with someone who brings a teenager to me for counseling, a rebellious teen for counseling, is that I need to move to practical applications that lead to effective transformative fruit. Now, the fruit that I'm talking about here is the child's behaviors. I want to examine the child's behaviors, but there is a pre-question. There is a pre-assessment. All parents come to counseling seeking how to get their child to behave more favorably. But before I get into the child's behavior, I need to assess the parent's behavior for all the reasons that I have been addressing thus far. I have to know what they have been doing for the child because I know, point number six, bad begats bad. And if you have a bad child, then there is a pre-question or a pre-assessment that I have to make. Those of you who do the work of discipleship and counseling, it's imperative that you understand this. If you start with the child, and for example, if the child understands, uh, let, let's say that I was meeting, some, that my parents sent me to a counselor to get help when I was 15 years old. I was in jail when I was 15 years old. And they're trying to get me to do right, act, act right. And I'm thinking, you know, this is more complicated than this. Do you know where I live? Do you know who my parents are? See, there's a communal aspect that has to be addressed. And so you want to be comprehensive. You want to be macro in your soul care, not micro. And even though you have to address the behaviors of the child, there's a pre-assessment. And so I want to give you six questions that I would ask a parent or parents if I were counseling a rebellious teenager because I need to know this information. If you want to pull this out of this article, you're welcome to do that. Just go to the website, rickthomas.net, look for this title, Seven Conditions That Make It More Difficult to Help a Child. All you have to do is just type in seven conditions, the number seven, not the word seven, the number seven conditions. If you type it in, you'll get this article, and you can copy and paste these questions out. It would be an excellent exercise just to extract this part of the article. All right, six questions to make this pre-assessment before I ever get to the child and his behaviors, because I know, point number six, bad begats bad. Number one, are the parents disciplined? For example, do they get up on time? Do they go to bed on time? Do they have spiritual disciplines? What other habits, good or bad, do they have? Do they have discipline? Because this is something that they're going to be asking me, the counselor, uh, to help their child with. Okay, well, do are the parents disciplined? Number two, are the parents accountable? Who is speaking into the parents' lives? Are they teachable? Do they pursue correction because they want to change? What are the results of their accountability? Number two, are the parents accountable? Number three, are the parents loving? Do they exhibit love toward each other, toward their children, toward God, toward the community? What is the aromatic flavor of the home? Is the aromatic flavor, the aroma is grace, or does it smell like something else? Number three, are the parents loving? Number four, are the parents wise? Are they pursuing God's word to search and apply his wisdom to their lives? Are they regularly spurring each other on toward maturity? 
wisdom, if you want wisdom, you have to push beyond gaining knowledge, learning about the Bible. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is the application of God's word. Number five, are the parents changing? Is there a noticeable and discernible change in the parents from year to year? If they are the example they should be, there should be observable changes. We're not static beings, but always moving in one of two directions. And then finally, number six, are the parents relational? Do the parents pursue and relate to a community of faith that is helping them walk with God? The upside of these types of friends, a community of faith, is that it provides the children with a larger sphere of influence to learn from and to adapt their lives to. And so the pre-assessment question before I get into the assessment of the child is with the parents. Are they disciplined? Are they accountable? Are they loving? Are they wise? Are they changing? Are they relational? Every Christian parent should want to instill these six qualities into their children. Disciplined, accountable, loving, wise, changing, and relational. Now, I know that you could add more to this list, and that would be fantastic if you did. But a lack of practically applying these, it will create a condition in which a parent will complicate their child's ability to change. And then number seven, problem-centered. As the parent is as the parent is looking at their child, some parents become too problem-centered. They bemoan the teen's bad attitudes as though it's all his fault. Now, granted, he is the primary fault, but he did not get there by himself. The environment's shaping influences over the past 15 years have impacted him significantly, and so you don't want to make two missteps as you are assessing this situation and trying to move forward toward redemptive solutions. Two missteps. One, the bad parent will throw the towel in as though there is no hope. The good parent, well, they can humbly brag because their children are doing well. But you know this to be true. Many good parents, they have children who rebel. And there are many awful parents whose kids follow Jesus, and I would be one of those kids. Regardless of a parent's role, don't be problem-centered Don't throw in the towel as there were no hope. Trust God through this process. The Lord must stabilize their minds as they re-strategize how to help their child. Now, if this is you, I would appeal to you to find a friend to walk you through this season. Many changes must happen, not just the child's behavior. The possibility of your child getting fixed during the counseling season, by the way, is nearly zero. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's say your child has been on a steady decline for several years, 10 years, 12 years. You bring him to counseling to get his head screwed on straight. Let's further surmise that some of your parenting has been like some of what I've been describing here in this podcast. It's going to take much longer than a counseling season. And so it would be wrongheaded to place your primary hope in someone else to do your job. But with that said, you cannot be 
problem-centered. Point number seven, if I came to you, and maybe this would be a good illustration for you, if I came to your counseling office for you to fix me as a 15-year-old boy, punk kid, teenager, I can tell you that it would take another 10 years before I would have gotten fixed. Why? Well, because I'm looking in the rearview mirror. It was 10 years before God rescued me. And through many twists and turns, the Lord kindly regenerated me when I was 25 years old. I trust many of you parents who are struggling with your teenagers that you keep this in mind. Deferred hope. There is hope. Maybe you have blown it with your child. Okay. We've all blown it. And we'll blow it again. If God has given you any light, if he's given you any wisdom, any discernment in what you have just heard, I appeal to you to step into that light. Humble yourself and determine you will do whatever it takes to change yourself and the environment of your home. Resist every temptation to complain. Resist every temptation to convict yourself with false guilt heaping more on you than you should, and resist every temptation to lurch for the ditch of despair. God is much greater than any problem you have, but he's in a relationship with you, and he expects you to participate, and this is where I started a while ago. If you feel God's motivation tugging at your conscience to change, I appeal to you right now to reverse the course. I have a call to action here. There are several questions that are listed. And as always, we're here for you. And so you can jump on our free community forum. If you happen to be a supporting member, we have a private forum for you. We want you to jump on it instead. And our team will be ready to talk with you. We want to help you. We want to give you more advice. We want to get into your specific situation, not just this broad, generalized context that I've presented to you through this podcast, but we want to get into your specific situation. Now, I realize the best case scenario is for you to have someone within your local church that can walk with you or some other real-life friend, not a cyberspace friend, who can walk with you, but I'm also aware that that's not always an option for some people. And so let us serve you, and that would be fantastic. Cynthia, thank you again for your kind generosity.